Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is overcoming supply chain disruptions with Shanna Greathouse and Tony Nichols. Welcome, Shanna. Welcome, Tony. Hey, thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. (laughs) Great. So, Shanna, please introduce yourself and your company. Yeah, so I'm with Carrier Direct. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, live in Cleveland, Ohio most of my life. I went to school at Baldwin-Wallace, which is a local school for Berea, Ohio, for anyone not from the Cleveland area, so most of you. And my undergrad is actually in physical therapy and biology. And then my graduate's international business. But I've been in supply chain for a good chunk of my career. I've worked with international companies the entire time and really enjoy supply chain and the aspects of it. When did you join Care Direct? I'm pretty new. It's been about four months, three months. Three or four months. (laughs) What made you want to join there? I'm just curious. I know it's a great company. I'm just curious what your reasons were. Well, I interviewed with my now boss and I had recently been looking for a position post-COVID and I had a really amazing boss prior. So that was a really high criteria. And then interviewing with my now boss, Steve, and then interviewing with the rest of the team. It's just an amazing culture. It's very solution-oriented. The people are really positive. They have really impressive backgrounds, but they don't. It's a very down-to-earth culture. People are very kind. It was just great. That's a Chicago thing. So, uh, <laughs> Tony, please introduce yourself. Yeah, so hi. Uh, Tony Nichols. I'm the vice president of the our, uh, supply chain practice at Carry Direct. You know, my background, I grew up on a farm in, in Indiana. I went to Purdue, studied business. And coming out of school, I went into industry in several supply chain roles with companies like Kraft, Monsanto, Clorox, and then got the consulting bug and went to Anderson Consulting or Accenture now, you know, in a supply chain consulting role and have stayed in consulting for really the last, you know, 20 years with companies like Accenture, Deloitte, the Hackett Group, Capture and I. And I recently joined Carry Direct. About, I guess the same time Shanna did uh, about three months ago. So nice. it's great to be here. Well, you know, I've just had recently a whole bunch of guys from farms. I had a <laughs> farming background. Zeke Ziliak over at Pros, he's down in Texas now, but he's from Indiana, farm boy. And I just interviewed Mitch Violet from Convoy, and he's from Montana, grew up on a farm. I was like, dang. Wow. There's something about growing up on a farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, Tony, tell us a little bit about Carrier Direct. It's a unique company, and I think it's worth noting what you guys do over there. Yeah, it is a unique company, and really we're a supply chain and logistics consulting firm. We work with carriers, with freight forwarders, with shippers, both from a technology as well as a, a strategy standpoint. And you know, my role is to come on and build more of the shipper profile. You know, Our legacy work has been really focused around transportation companies and, and freight forwarders. But as we're expanding out into more of the shipper profile, that's where a lot of our focus has been over these last three months and we'll be moving forward as well. Yeah, I can tell you, I've always known people from Carrier Direct. Of course, I know the great and powerful Ryan Schreiber. That's part of, being, <laughs> hey, part, hey, of, <laughs> part of being in logistics means, you know, Ryan. But 
I've always been so impressed with the people I've met over at Carrier Direct. It's a great company. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and again, I mean, we work with some of the larger players in the industry, so JB Hunt, FedEx, Warner, etc. So it's although we're you know small, we work with uh, you know some of the larger transportation companies in the industry, and, and yeah. done a great job. I love the focus because a lot of companies that say, "Oh, well, we do supply chain," but then they don't work with any of the guys who move the supply chain. <laughs> so anyway, today's topic is overcoming supply chain disruptions. And we are right in the middle of the supply chain disruption called COVID-19, or when we're prepping, we're calling it the COVID-19 or 20. <laughs> very, very similar to that freshman 15, but not nearly as much fun. So Shanna or Tony, one of you, talk about the problems that cause these supply chain disruptions. Well, I think COVID, you know, the pandemic has been one of the bigger sources of it, right? You know, manufacturing companies have had to shut down, restaurants have shut down, you know, et cetera. The source of raw materials for manufacturing has been a big issue. I, I saw an article for Q2 that, you know, manufacturing plants in North America were at 74% capacity. Right. And that's due to lack of raw materials as well as... Well, let's not get into that just yet. I'm just curious, besides COVID, we're living through that one. What other kind of thing would cause big disruptions like this? This is not our last crisis. Right, right. No, and I agree. So natural disasters, right? So all the the hurricanes and, and tropical storms. I live in Houston, right? And it seems like over the summer, you know, every other week there was a hurricane coming at oh us. Oh my so, God, yeah. You know, hurricanes, tropical storms, all the fires that were on the West Coast, had some big issues. And then if you look at some of the social political events, you know, tariff wars and so forth disrupted the supply chains as, as, as well. And then this changes in, you know, consumer buying habits, right? So, and that was an effect of, of really COVID, but, you know, people don't want to go to the stores anymore, right? They want everything delivered in the past. Two-day delivery was fine now. Folks want it next hour, right? Or next day at the, at the most. So, right. But it's disrupted the supply chain. Right. So this is the COVID, which we're living through right now. We had, this is our first pandemic, but we, there was one 100 years ago. I hope that we, I hope we can never have one again, but there's going to be other natural disasters. Whether you call this a natural disaster or not, but there's social economic and there, you know, I remember the Great Recession. It was a lot of companies I'm working on motive. A lot of companies went out of business because of the Great Recession and all of a sudden all these supply chain disruptions. So we're always going to have the next crisis. And I think what we have to kind of do, and I know we're going to talk about this in a minute, we'll talk about the results of some of this, but we have to start planning for that next big problem before it happens. And we can always do stuff reactively, but we want to get to that place where we're doing it proactively. So what are some of the results of these supply chain disruptions caused by natural disasters, pandemics, social economic? Shannon, give us some, what are some of the results that cause grief for the supply chain? It's been a host of them. So just like consumers aren't going to the stores, well, workers aren't going to manufacturing plants too. If it's an outbreak of COVID, for example, Japan had the tsunami that you know rocked their supply chain as well a few years ago. So there's always a trickle. It's not just the consumers that experience it. Manufacturing experiences it too, along with that. So from just having a labor shortage overall, there's things like the actual capacity from spikes in demand, right? We've seen these behaviors where there's mass hoarding. You've seen like the toilet paper. (laughs) And that trickles down all the way through. So manufacturers have to plan for this kind of a thing. And when they don't, 
there's capacity issues. So when we have these great big problems, these supply chain disruptions caused by a pandemic that no one saw coming, the natural disasters that happen, they're always going to happen. There's going to be another one someday, hopefully not soon. What are the results? What are the downstream? What are the things that disrupt the supply chain? Mm -hmm. So there are several things that happen. It starts with that root of either you've got a labor shortage as a result. So in the case of people just not showing up to work because it's not a safe working environment, whether it's from natural disaster or it's from COVID related or sociopolitical too. I mean, we had the uprising in um, Barcelona earlier this year, for example. So there's a host of things that could happen. Right. Yeah. I just have a daughter who is still young, but she's got a job in procurement and Mm -hmm. she's buying she works at one of the companies making the vaccine and she's buying oh. PPE and personal protection equipment. And she said, you know where this stuff comes from? Wuhan. You have to buy oh, yeah. <laughs> most of your personal protection equipment's coming from Wuhan. And obviously they had some manufacturing capacity issues there. And so manufacturing capacity is one of the big issues caused by these disruptions. What's some other ones, Tony? Yeah. So I would say poor congestion is one of the other issues. Oh my God. I hear so much about that. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, they just can't, you have ships sitting out like in Long Beach, right? They just can't get them unloaded. So that would be one area. I think that's up and down the the coastline. The other thing I think is capacity of carriers for final mile and and white club delivery. You know, you hear stories of things that should have been delivered, you know, two or three days, and it's taking up to six weeks, especially during the holidays. So again, I think this goes back to you know, shippers, even the big guys, you know, Walmart, Amazon, taking a look at what they need from a infrastructure and, you know, distribution network standpoint to meet new consumer demands because they're not, they're not going to change. It will go back a little bit more normalized, but, you know, people are going to continue to work from home. People are going to continue to want home deliveries versus going to a store and so forth. So right, it's really a change in the whole distribution network. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of freight forwarders and fulfillment centers, and some of them, and this was on the West Coast, said we have enormous absenteeism in our facility, so we can't unload as quickly as we want. And we have a lot of consumer demand, right? And the consumer demand's coming in, but if you can't unload it, if the ports can't unload and you have this port congestion, it drives this huge (laughs) bottleneck. And then to your point, we got final mile. All of a sudden, everybody wants to, things delivered to their homes, <laughs> right? And maybe you can speak to this, uh, Shanna or Tony. I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot here. I know we have capacity issues. Is this caused by a surge in demand or is it caused because some people are sitting on the sidelines because of COVID? So it's really a combination of both. And I think one thing that's interesting, just to call back to your comment on your daughter with the the PPE and that shortage, that's almost like a new bill of material item for every time you go for that white glove delivery, you're expected to have PPE on you and for the safety of yourself and the safety of the people in the home. So that could be a further constraint on capacity. But really, I mean, you have people not able to go to work. I mean, we're climbing with cases every day in the U.S., and globally. And then you also have just this hoarding behavior, this e-commerce makes it really accessible for people. It's a great experience, but it puts a lot of interesting challenges on last mile delivery. Right, right. And you know, it's just also interesting when you have some people who have, and this is, I think we all have friends and family who are experiencing this. They have all of a sudden their kids' school is closed. So they say, I can't go to work. I have to stay home. I have to work from home suddenly. 
And so they might have been somebody who was going to a factory or they might have been somebody going to a distribution center. All of a sudden that labor's off the field. And mm-hmm. and God forbid it's when he gets beyond that. You have high risk people. They say, the hell with it. I'm not going to work. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so some of the downstream results of these natural disasters, pandemics, social economic upheaval is, I think what I heard you guys, manufacturing capacity, financial impacts, obviously caused by that, port congestion, lead time problems all across the board. Raw mm-hmm. goods are all of a sudden <laughs> at risk because they can't come in the ports. Cost of labor went up, cost of raw goods goes up, and then final mile in trucking. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done, people. So, Tony, talk about some of the solutions to this, because this is not our last crisis. We need to start planning for the next one. What can we do so we don't find ourselves with the same massive... And and by the way, 100 years ago, this would have been way worse. I mean, I I was reading the other day that 675,000 people died during the pandemic a hundred years ago. Yeah. So that's the equivalent of like 1.8 million. Right. That's what I was going to say, because we had like a hundred million people back then. So, and I guarantee the supply chains weren't as advanced as we are today. So this is not our last pandemic. Tony, what can we do to prevent the downstream impacts like we're talking about just now? Yeah. So companies really need to change their forecasting narrative, if you will. So, you know, in the past, companies have looked at historical forecasting, you know, there's there's some ups and downs, holidays or whatever the case may be, but they really need to move to a consumption-based supply chain operations planning process. And to do that, they need the data, right? And companies will need to be very proactive now and in the future to be able to put systems in place, data analytics, predictive analytics to get that data so it can drive their whole SNLP process to drive demand plans, to drive manufacturing plans. And, you know, that's going to be critical as consumer buying habits change as well, right? So, again, as we said earlier, a consumer wants it next day or next hour versus, you know, they'll accept two or three days. Right. So when you say, so we're going to change the way we do forecasting, and you, so when you say demand forecast, I mean, can, I'm sorry, com- consumption. So what's the difference? So consumption, I understand. <laughs> so so I, I go to the store and I buy something, I'm consumed it, Right. Uh, that's uh, the COVID-19 or 20. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's right? Yeah, so it's that real-time data. So it, you know, can be through POS data, but it's that real-time data of, you know, at the consumer level or at your customer level. So if you're a shipper, for example, and Walmart's buying three truckloads of X product, you want to know that right away, right? So it can go into your sales and operations process. And so what's the other way that people traditionally did forecasting? Historical, historical demand. So if you're a, a candy maker, for example, I mean, you're going to have a peak at Christmas, you're going to have a peak at Easter, right? And then it's going to be, you know, kind of steady state, right? But now you want to see that demand right away because the historical forecasting process, to me, it, it is out the door. You need to have real-time data right. to drive your manufacturing and add that to the changes in sourcing strategies, right? Maybe away from China. So it's it's really a data visibility issue that you know companies need to, to make right. Yeah, and when you think about it, if you say, I need to be based on consumption, consumption-based versus historical, then it, ideally I get my manufacturing resources close to the customer, my inventory close to the customer, so mm-hmm. I can make those quick changes, right? 
Correct. Yes. Yes. So forecasting is the first thing moving from historical to consumption based. What's another thing? Shannon, why don't you do one? What's another thing we can do to, uh, <laughs> to alleviate some of these results, downstream results of the supply chain disruption? Yeah. So Tony's really tying into data. Data is so key for forecasting and the data lag is not your friend. It causes a lot of churn inside an organization, unnecessary meetings, which everybody hates. (laughs) So in turn, you're improving morale. So really what you can do is really invest in your company. We're seeing that 18% of people or companies right now surveyed from a recent one of Anson Paper. We're saying that they currently had this concept of a digital twin. 55% were planning in one to three years. Now imagine if everyone... If that entire 55% of companies surveyed were actually already using a digital twin, meaning that their internal systems were completely harmonized. So you have your ERP, your CRM, your OMS, your WMS, and then you can take it a step further. You can go to your suppliers and you can start integrating there. Apple does this, for example, as part of their onboarding process across. They can see an SAP of any of their suppliers. It's fantastic. So does digital twin mean everything I'm doing? Offline is also online? Correct. Correct. So it's a true end-to-end view digitally of your company. You start connecting systems that usually don't connect. And by doing that, you enable a lot of interesting data. And you can also do something like create a sandbox where you take that and you mirror it in as, as a test environment. And you can run analysis. You can run risk reward. You can do things live as well and see... For example, in 2001, there was a shortage of, I think it was nickel in supply chain, and it ended up disrupting Nokia's supply chain of 27% of the cell phone market. Imagine if they had that information six months ahead. You can start partnering with your supply chain. You can take on some of the raw material costs for them. So since you have more purchasing power. I think the nice thing about having like a digital twin means I can probably do a lot of scenario planning. That's probably the, one of the real advantages of that, right? Yes, definitely. And is that what you mean by digital sandbox? Or did you say digital sandbox or did I just make that up? (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah. It's a sandbox. It's a playground. It's a test environment so that you can run different scenarios. You can set tolerance levels. You can do likelihoods of events happening historically. And then you can do predictive analytics forward to really understand cost benefit of for instance, housing more inventory, taking on supplier inventory risk for them whenever you have more purchasing power. That's crazy. It's, a, it's funny. We've uh, Everyone who's got kids, or especially sons, they're playing all those video games. And I keep thinking, yeah, this is not really applicable to your real life, but maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> it is. Maybe it's the, they're they'll be doing something. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. We say, put those kids to work in a few years on scenario planning so we can understand what's the impacts. So you could potentially say, what if this, what if we had an earthquake on the West Mm -hmm. Coast? What if there was a big disruption in China for some reason? Right. You can set risk ratings for your suppliers based on their location is a big thing. So as Tony was talking about our supply chain diversity a little bit, that's a huge part of it is being geographically diverse now. Yeah, I just was talking to somebody on my pod, a recent podcast and they talked, I think it's University of Tennessee puts out like for every country in the world, what's the risk of doing business there. So if you have a lot of your supply chain in a place that's risky. That's <laughs> then, perfect. They're doing the work for yeah. you. <laughs> exactly. So we talked about moving to consumption-based forecasts and we talked about kind of this idea of digital twins. What's another thing, Tony? 
Well, I think it's really new partnership opportunities, especially for the small and mid-tier shipper, if you will. You know, as we discussed earlier, you know, consumer buying habits are changing quite a bit. And a lot of these companies don't have the infrastructure capabilities to meet the find a mile and, and white glove delivery service. So, you know, I think more and more of those mid and small tier companies to compete against the Amazons and Walmarts and Targets of the world are really going to have to develop partnerships from a distribution network strategy and transportation strategy with other companies, even competitors, right? To be able to meet the consumer demand and consumer expectations and really build you know, consortiums with other like companies to meet the consumer expectations. Because again, I think COVID has changed the world and it's changed the way, you know, people live and people work. And it's going to come back somewhat back to the way it was. But I think a lot of companies have said, okay, work from home, et cetera. So a lot of manufacturing companies are going to have to look at the way they partner with their peers in the future. Right. You know, and I don't know if this is exactly what you're getting at, but I set my mother up with Shipt and she gets her groceries that way. She's, she's in her 80s and she's like, yeah, Shipt is cool. So she's got her iPad. She just rings it up. And I was thinking, that's not going back. Now that she's using it, she's like, this is pretty cool. I like it. Exactly. Exactly. And I just had read, I didn't realize this. I was looking up Shipt. Shipt is owned by Target. And I saw that Shipt has 200,000 what they call personal shoppers. Last time I was at the grocery store, I noticed all these people walking around with <laughs> t-shirts on. And I was like, am I the only one? And I have a shipped account, but I, I still found myself at the grocery store. And I thought, yeah, the world's all of a sudden changing. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, which would I rather do? Go work a job potentially in a factory or do this? I think there's a lot of people to the gig economy. They're like, I dropped my kids off at school and then I zoomed over and did some grocery shopping. <laughs> Yeah, and they have like the, the big carts in the in the aisles that block everything, right? <laughs> but that's the right. new new. That's going to be the new normal. Yeah, I remember like a year and a half ago, I was consulting for a greeting card company. So the click and collect is like their mortal enemy because greeting cards are kind of a very tactile kind of process for buying. And there's some impulse tied to it too. So any impulse industry just hates click and collect. And we were researching on Shipt and Instacart. And like, these are not viable. This is way too much overhead. People don't have this kind of a tolerance for this kind of a fee. You know, you've got the delivery, the shipping fees, the tip on top of it. It just compounds so much that these are just going to crash and burn. But then come a situation like this, suddenly we're looking at like the markets in Asia where it was 12% like five years ago for grocery it was all click and collect. And yeah, we could actually do that now. That could be normal or more. <laughs> You used a term there that I've never heard before. So what did you say? Click and collect? Oh, it's what like is that? curbside pickup. I, know, I think I know what it is. Curbside pickup. Yeah. Interesting. So it's I, I know people do curbside because I see them when I'm there. When me and the shipped people are at the grocery store, <laughs> I see people picking up their groceries. It's interesting. Shipped has, I read, and it's, it's, it was in a recent Forbes article, 200,000 personal shoppers. I could see them easily getting to a million. I mean, it's, it just seems like the world all of a sudden changed. And it's like, it's quickly, and the Target owns them. Again, it's one of the large, it's going to be one of the largest companies in the world, if you think about it. That's crazy. Like one out of every 300 people could be a, a personal shopper in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's what you mean by when you're talking about these new partnerships, potentially they're partnering with finding a company like Shipped, or is that what you're getting at, Tony? Or yeah, yeah. It, it's it's yeah. partnering with a company like Shipped or building consortiums with other shippers 
to reduce costs and have the infrastructure to do the next day delivery to compete against a, a Walmart or an Amazon. So it's not just partnerships for delivery. Is it also partnerships for like sourcing too? Or the, yeah, correct. Yep. Cool. So we talked about changing the way we do forecasting. We talked about digital twins. We talked about this idea of partnerships. What's another one, Shanna? I'm going to go back to data because that's what I love. So <laughs> true cost of goods. This is something that seems really, really simple. It's one line in the P&L. You buy what you buy as far as your raw materials, and it is what it is. But there's so much more that goes into it. When you look at China, for example, and the sourcing strategy that's been so prevalent for the past probably 20 to 30 years, China used to be 600% more expensive for their labor. You mean less expensive? Oh, less expensive. Correct. Good catch. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Then Central America. But that's narrowed. It's only 30% of the savings overall now. And when you start factoring in things like safety stock that you have because of the additional ocean transit time versus what you could accomplish by doing like a standard mode from sourcing in Central America. The extra support, potentially you could have multiple ships to support suppliers in China. Cost of quality, right? You don't know if if a batch is not going to pass your receiving inspection until it's in the door and that's six weeks. So that's a lot of investment. It's potentially two to four weeks of safety stock. So all of these things compound to get to a really a clean cost of goods, that's an all-in number, and they start really balancing out. So as we see people nearshoring, this is the stuff that they're looking at now. Right. And it's so important whenever there's so much pressure, especially from the Chinese market currently, as Tony had mentioned, the sociopolitical climate. Right. It's interesting. I spent, I always say this, I spent a ton of time in the 90s back and forth to China and Thailand. And I love working there. They're great people all that. But I will say being 12 hours time difference is it is an issue. Being one month on the ocean is an issue. And lately I've been down to Mexico a lot for work. That's mm-hmm. so much easier. They're in our time zone. I think the culture is a lot closer. So there's a lot of people here who speak Spanish. And obviously if you're down to Mexico a lot, they speak a lot of English down there. So I find it just much easier. And you know, we I'm in my 50s, so I can remember this stuff. Stuff moved from the north down to the south all throughout the 70s and 80s. And the reason is because we had higher costs of labor here, higher costs of living in the cities. It moved down to Alabama, Mississippi, all these places. And it was like, wow, it's much cheaper down there. And then what happened? It moved to China. I don't, or wherever it moves, maybe also Mexico. But what I think is happening is labor arbitrage is kind of coming to an end, yeah. especially mm-hmm. since so much stuff is automated. And automation doesn't care if it lives in China, Mexico, or the U.S. So it's starting to make sense to take a look at that stuff. Yeah, definitely. It used to be tooling was the big barrier too, right? That's an expensive investment to ship or move. And now that's becoming a commonplace. Got it. Got it. So why don't one of you, Tony, why don't you summarize this topic for us? And then Shannon will get your final thoughts on it too. So, you know, right now, companies are you're facing a lot of different issues, whether it be COVID-19, whether it be natural disasters, sociopolitical events, and other changes in consumer habits and so forth. And we feel that from a supply chain standpoint, that data and visibility is one of the, the biggest issues companies are going to be facing. And that's really the solution to to fix the problems that uh, for the future, for now and, and for them, for when they face disruptions. 
There's a lot of opportunity that's opened up from going through this as a global community. And I think a great outcome of this is that people are and companies are reevaluating their stance on tech supply chain. Supply chain used to not be a topic for investment from a data analytics point of view. It didn't even make the top 10 on surveys. And now it's the number one thought from several different executives interviewed. So really, it's just an opportunity. And there's so much to come from it. I think that it will make the business community a lot stronger, a lot more collaborative, a lot more transparent. It'll make people enjoy, I think, genuinely going to work again. In a lot of ways. Right. You know, this is my own two cents on this is I'm an automotive guy. I'm here in Michigan. And if I went back 50 or 60, 100 years ago, cars were made here and our suppliers would be here or in Ohio or Wisconsin, Illinois, Wisconsin, you know, all these surrounding states. It was not a problem. The trucking companies go pick that stuff and bring it down. Now, when I think about what automotive is, we don't build it all in our four walls. We buy it from China. We buy it from Mexico. India, you name it, it's rare to have your supplier be down the street. So you have to all of a sudden worry about all the problems that we've talked about today. It's not in your four walls anymore. Right. But it can be virtually in your four walls, right? (laughs) Exactly. That's the digital twin. So you guys tell us a little bit about what's going on over at Carry Direct. Oh, and we should also have mentioned some of the stuff we talked about is just some small piece of a white paper you guys just created. So talk a little bit about Carrier Direct and that white paper. Yeah. So again, as we said earlier, Carrier Direct's a you know management consulting firm. We're, we're focusing on logistics, supply chain, and technology. You know, we work with a lot of the larger carriers, JB Hunt, FedEx, et cetera, as well as you know, freight forwarders and, and shippers. And we're expanding out our capabilities in some other areas of supply chain. So benchmarking, supply chain resiliency, sales and operations planning, et cetera. And, you know, if folks would like to, to learn more, please reach out to myself or Shanna or go to our website, you know, prairiedirect.com. And, you know, right. we, we look forward to working with you. Yep. And so what I'll do, Tony, is I'll put a link to Shanna's LinkedIn profile, put a link to your LinkedIn profile. We'll put a link to Carrier Direct, but also to that white paper. And Shanna, why don't you speak to that white paper and we'll wrap this bad boy up. Sure. So the white paper was published less than a month ago. We're really excited about it. It's a focused paper on data transparency and how that can help mitigate some of these things we talked about today. There's seven. So in addition to the four we covered, there's three more that are in that paper, along with some great data points and more about how Carrier Direct can work with the company too. Yep. And this, as we said, this is not our, we're in the COVID age, but when we get with done with this, there'll be another one. There'll be, as Tony said, a, a fire on the West Coast or a, a social economic problem. God, I, I hope the world stays nice and sane for a little while, but we can't count on that. So we have to protect our supply chain doing some of the stuff you guys have talked about. Well, guys, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. See you guys. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logistics of logistics.com. <laughs>